Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a practicing hemonc doctor, and my interests are medicine, oncology, and health policy. And that's what you're going to get on Plenary Session. This is season four, hashtag zero COVID. It's zero COVID because we're not going to talk about COVID. We're back. Oncology, medicine, health policy. We've got a lot in store for you. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating or write us a review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. You can email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Give us your suggestions on what we should be covering. And we got a new YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad, MD, MPH. Follow us on YouTube. I'm putting up a 10-part series on reading and interpreting cancer clinical trials. You'll want to watch it there. And if you really love this show, you can back us on patreon.com. Patreon backers get access to slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. And with that, let's start the show. Dr. Vinay Prasad here, University of California, San Francisco. I'm back, new video. Checkmate 274, you've asked me to comment on it. So I took a look at this publication, adjuvant nivolumab in urothelial carcinoma. Here are my thoughts. I put together a few of them for you. Let me show you the paper. Here it is, New England Journal paper. Means it's gotta be good, right? Adjuvant nivolumab versus placebo in muscle invasive urothelial carcinoma. And here they include bladder cancer, about three quarters and one quarter upper tract disease. I think, I think they actually capped it at 20%. The one thing you had to have to enroll in this study is you had to have pathologic disease at the time of the operation. You had to have either tumor present or you had to have that nodal disease present. And depending on whether or not you got neoadjuvant cisplatin, there were different rules for the exact pathologic stage you had to have at the time of the operation. Uh, you can take out the, you can check out the publication for that information. But suffice it to say, these are people, half of whom roughly had neoadjuvant cisplatin or platinum-containing regimens, and the other half didn't. Um, and there's a mix of upper and lower tract disease. Let me show you that here. Um, it looked like 80% bladder. Uh, and then I think they did cap upper tract disease at 20%. Um, the interesting thing here is that uh, we have the pouch study. Uh, we have the Lancet study, which shows that if you had upper tract disease, you probably ought to get platinum adjuvant if you hadn't gotten in the new adjuvant setting. Um, and I think that data is uh, rather convincing. So here, nivolumab tries to float into this space. They take these patients, they randomize them to a year of nivolumab or standard of care observation. It isn't quite standard of care. Some of these people probably need adjuvant chemotherapy for upper tract disease, and other people in this study probably were eligible for new adjuvant therapy, but they didn't want to get it. We all know MVAC is, a, is, a, is quite something, um, but uh, it is likely underused in some people with good performance status who, who ought to get it, the seminal paper by Grossman and colleagues in New England Journal. Um, let me show you the, the overall result. Here it is. Uh, there's going to be a DFS benefit here, disease-free survival, my favorite composite endpoint. Um, I don't want to get too far along. I wanted to just point out that you know, there's a fraction of these patients who are cured. They're cured simply by surgery. And you know that because the placebo arm has a plateau in it. Now, this is a early look at the curve. Um, this is a curve where that plateau is kind of um, a noisy estimate. Very few people are at risk at the tail, but there is some cure to fraction. So even before we started this study, we knew a few things. We knew a year of nivolumab, which is the proscription on this trial, it's about 150 grand in the US. What a deal. And you're gonna to have to give it to everybody in the study, 100 people, you're gonna to have to give it to 100 people, hypothetically, every single person, and it's gonna cost you about 15 mil. So that's the outlay for 100 people being treated with nivolumab for a year. You also knew when you ran this study, the 35 
of those people are probably cured already. You might've even guessed a higher amount, but you know, 35 based on what we found, we're cured already. So let's assume that you cured every single one of those 65 people who wasn't cured. This drug worked perfectly and we increased that and we had a Kaplan-Meier curve that just hugged 100% the whole time. Well, if that were the case at $15 million to treat 100 people, it would be $230,000 per person you cured. Okay, but assuming you cure all 65 people, that's, that's really ambitious. That's a, that's a lofty goal and it's likely not realistic. What if you cured about half of them? You cured 25 people. So you increased it from 35% um, to 60%. Now you're talking about $600,000 per person cured. But even that's optimistic. You really think you're going to get there? What if you just cured an increase of 10%? You increased the cure to fraction 10%. That's really, really good. I mean, that's quite remarkable. We don't see that too often in the adjuvant space in solid tumors. But now you're talking about $1.5 million per patient, quote unquote, cured. But what if it dropped down to six people or five people? Now you're talking about two and a half mil per person cured or three million per person cured. My point is, before you even ran this study, the authors knew that these were the figures. They knew these were the numbers. And they knew that some of these numbers suggest that under most reasonable assumptions, even if the trial goes swimmingly, many nations around the world will simply not be able to afford this. These are patients who are often older. They have comorbidities. Um, even if you were to cure them, Two and a half million dollars or $3 million per cure, I think that is something that people will struggle with globally to pay for. And they will even struggle with in this country. I think it's the road to bankruptcy and financial ruin if we start to spend that much per patient cured. But this is just the outset. Um, the ways to fix this, of course, is to charge a reasonable amount of money for this or to postulate a bigger benefit. Of course, here's what they found. I've, I've drawn the curve. So what is the fraction who have prolonged DFS benefit? Now they keep highlighting, you know, the percent of people who are free of disease at 12 months, but that's not what we really care about. We're giving this drug up front. We hope for some durable remissions. And here's what you see. Let me zoom in on that. Boom. There you go. There it is. And what is that percent increase? I don't know. I'm going to call it 6%. It's a 6% increase in the long-term durable fraction in the intention to treat population. Um, that's what I call it. And if you assume that's the case, we're talking about two and a half million dollars per person cured. And this isn't even getting to the core issues of this paper, which is to do all of these hundred people need nivolumab upfront, or would they get the same outcome if you reserved Pembro or Nevo or Avelu or Atezo for when they had relapsed recurrent disease, which is the current standard of care? In other words, are you better off treating everyone in the adjuvant setting or treating the people who recur when they recur? We don't know that because this trial has not provided enough information and likely we may never know that because it's a global trial run in places where they don't have the US standard of care on the back end for the control arm patients. But let's assume that you know this is as good as they advertise. It's two and a half million dollars per person cured of disease. That's a, that's a lot of money. And it's not just a lot of money, it's a lot of toxicity. A lot of people are gonna have side effects of this drug. And I don't want to get too much into the toxicity issue because we have a publication we're working on that's going to make this point well. And I don't want to scoop myself, but you know, there's increases in all the usual things that come with IO therapy. They always say in these IO trials that we didn't find any new adverse events. Well, I didn't expect you to find new adverse events. I want you to document the rate with which you found the adverse events that I know happen when you give IO. We're talking about excess events, for 100 people treated, you know, there's 12 people with, you know, pruritus, diarrhea, fatigue, nauseated, and perhaps most concerning, you know, there's two treatment-related deaths on this arm. Of course, that's out of several hundred people, more than 100. But, um, you know, there is, there, is a, there is a price to pay for treating a lot of people, many of whom will recur anyway, 
and some of whom who are cured already with this drug just to save a few people who you can flip from going to have recurrence to not going to have recurrence. Now, of course, you know, I haven't gotten to the key issues. Outcomes would have been better if the control arm had gotten adjuvant therapy for upper tract disease. Of course, that would have been better. Um, when you talk about real world patients who are going to be less fit, they're going to have higher event rates and they're going to have more toxicity from this regimen. That's going to diminish your, your benefit. Um, control arm patients who progress, they're eventually going to get Avalumab or Pembro. And some of those patients may have a durable response, which is going to change that delta, your ability to have a higher durable responder uh, ratio. And the PD-1 cutoffs, you know, they use a 28-8 antibody. Um, they're looking at tumor cells, TC, not CPS. Uh, of course, uh, BMS, you love to slice and dice it. Sometimes tumor cells, sometimes T CPS, you love it. Um, and um, you're looking at 1% or greater, it looks better in 1%, but we really need to see, you know, one to five, one to five percent, five to ten percent, et cetera, et cetera. We need to see sort of that range. And there's a couple of interesting things. One last interesting thing is, of course, um, what is this? I am vigor, invigor, or empower? It knows invigor, of course. So, oh, of course, invigor ten. How could I forget my impassions and invigors and empowers and embraves? Um, invigor ten shows that Atezo actually failed in a very uh, uh, comparable. Um, randomized control trial in the adjuvant space. So this also begs the question of whether or not, or to what degree the exact, the result we're seeing with nivolumab is exaggerated or spurious. I mean, it would be great to see this as a class effect, but we see over and over with IO therapy, sometimes a drug hits and other drugs don't hit. Um, people say that that's attributable to small differences in study design. That's not exactly a reassuring picture. If small differences in study design in idealized patients can result in the difference between success or failure, what do you think happens when we start using these drugs in the real world for people who aren't idealized patients? I think it's likely that some of these effects will slip away. Um, the last thing I have to say. The authors, with the assistance of the medical writer employed by BMS, drafted and provided final approval of the manuscript that was submitted. Stop using medical writers. Write your own papers. How can anyone be promoted over this? It's absolutely unacceptable to me that people use medical writers. Um, this is supposedly this is scholarship. Supposedly people are advancing as professors in the same tract as the humanities or philosophy. You can't get other people to do your work. Your cognitive work. Writing is cognitive work, and you can't outsource that to other people. If you purport to be an academic, I think it's a violation of basic academic norms. And so I strongly disagree with the use of medical writers. Of course, in addition to that, they distort the writing to make it always sound favorable, which is why they're being hired in the first place. Okay. This is one thing that I think piqued my interest, which was, um, it was actually the people who received the neoadjuvant cisplatin therapy who derived the greatest benefit versus those who did not receive it, um, who appeared to have sort of a fundamentally different point estimate. I don't know the interaction coefficients there. If I were betting, eyeballing, I bet that's a significant interaction coefficient. Somebody check me on that and email me if you know the interaction coefficient there. Um, why I say this is interesting. What this is telling you is that people who got treated with platinum and still had pathologic disease, that's the group within which there is the, the population um, for whom unleashing the immune system is probably gonna exert some DFS benefit. And it's the group of people who, you know, they have disease, but you didn't use platinum as sort of a test um, of, of their disease biology. Uh, that's probably a mix of people, including people in whom unleashing the immune system is not gonna do a whole lot. So those are my thoughts on this paper. I think that's it. Um, overall, 
I'm intrigued. I certainly don't doubt that checkpoint inhibitors have some role to play in bladder cancer. No one doubts that. I haven't doubted that since the papers by Bramer and Topolian in 2012. I've never doubted that because I knew that there was a response rate and some of that response might even be durable. What I do wonder, deeply wonder, is whether we need to be giving this in the adjuvant space where we treat 100 people for at most six people being cured. And that 100 people, mostly they're gonna get the full year of therapy uh, because of the rates with which the events occurred in this study. And you're gonna be dropping, you know, a couple million, two to three million per event averted. Um, I, I use the word cure, but I don't even know for sure they're cured. I should be careful about that, but it's event averted. Most nations around this world are not gonna drop two to three mil per event averted, they're just not. You knew this when you were running your study. Your design and conduct and power all assumed an unaffordable product, even if you succeeded. That to me is problematic. Your medical writer is problematic. And I really don't know if I, if I could achieve the same outcome by reserving these drugs for the second line setting. It's the same problem with Javelin 100, which we've written about. Sonny Kim and I have written a paper in EBM, the journal. Um, and it's a problem that plagues this field, which is once they show activity, they want all the market share and they're greedy. So it's up to oncologists to actually hold them accountable, and make them do good studies. This study, more questions than answers. So on that positive note, those are my thoughts. Checks, checkmate 274. Vinay Prasad here, University of California, San Francisco. I got a new video for you. It's Paradigm HF time. It's time to talk about this study. I've been talking about it for years, but I haven't actually put together a brief video just on this one study. So let me show you. This is the Paradigm HF trial. It's a trial that uh, many years ago I got into a, a bit of a squabble with. The PI, Milt Packer and I, we went toe to toe in the old NEJM forum. And I think uh, egos were bruised but I still didn't have a satisfactory answer because I got a lot of questions about this drug. You've seen it in Tresto. It's now gradually and finally claimed a little bit of market share. Good for Novartis. They can always get the market share they want, but does the drug actually outperform standard of care therapies? It's a good question. It's a question I've had for many years. This was the trial. I remember the moment it came out, Paradigm HF. I don't know for sure, but I suspect it was a Wednesday at 5 p.m. because that's when New England Journal articles come out. This was angiotensin inhibitor, neprilysin inhibition versus enalapril in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And it was obviously a very sensational paper. We hadn't had a lot of breakthroughs in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. I was fresh out of residency and I remembered those patients as if they were yesterday. Uh, but I took a look at this study then I had some questions. First, of course, I noticed the whopping OS benefit. Now, this is a real this is a real benefit. I mean, I don't think anyone can discount the magnitude of benefit here. If you get a benefit like that, I think we would all be very satisfied and we'd all be sold on the drug product. But I'm not sure we get a benefit like that. So let me walk you through the data. This was a randomized control trial of Secubitril, novel drug. We had never really had an approval for it. We never given it to people prior to this uh, particular study. Paired with Valsartan at 160 milligrams BID, that's a stiff dose of Valsartan. Before the study, of course, there was a single combination drug that was an ACE inhibitor and an eprilysin inhibitor. It had failed in randomized testing, and one of the noted side effects was angioedema. So I think the company wisely decided to pair a neprilysin inhibitor with an angiotensin receptor blocker to try to mitigate the potential of angioedema when they came up with Entresto, the combination pill. This was the dose of ARB that they paired it with. And what did they go up against? Well, obviously they did the sensible thing. They randomized 10,000 people, New York Heart 2, 3, and 4 heart failure to Secubitril Valsartan versus Valsartan, right? 
They took the ACE intolerant patients and did this study. That's not what they did, of course. They didn't do that. They randomized him against enalapril 10 milligrams BID. And the reason that stuck with me was that I knew 160 milligrams BID of Valsartan was a stiff dose of ARB. It was the maximum FDA approved dose. And I knew enalapril 10 milligrams BID was half the maximal FDA dose. And there's a lot of dancing the authors did around that, why they chose that dose. But the fact remains, it was not the maximum ACE inhibitor dose that you could prescribe according to package leaflet instructions. This is the comparison. So it was a randomized controlled trial, 10,000 people, Secubitril, Valsartan versus Enalapril, whatever they were taking at baseline, they stopped their ACEs and ARBs and they took one of these two, right? Not quite. It was a little bit more complicated than that because they did a double drug running period. Mm, quite interesting. So they took those 10,500 patients with New York Heart 2, three, four, a little bit of one uh, heart failure, and uh, they enrolled them in this study. Here's what they did. They were all taking an ACE inhibitor or ARB at baseline, of course, they would be. That's the standard of care for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. They were then asked to stop that medication and take an enalapril, 10 milligrams BID for 14 days, during which time a thousand people dropped off the study. That's a bit, uh, that's a bit of, a, of a selection filter. Then they took the combo pill, Secubitril Valsartan, first at the 80 milligrams BID dose, then they cranked it up to 160 milligrams BID dose. That's a dose that would make me a little bit dizzy, but they did it in this study. And they had a run-in period of 28 days where another thousand people fell off this study. So 20% of the people have been weeded out by a type of inclusion criteria. It's a double drug run-in inclusion criteria of unequal periods of time. The longer you run in on a study drug, the more of an opportunity you have to remove people who idiosyncratically cannot tolerate your study medication. You are giving your drug, Secubitril Valsartan, a huge boost by having twice as long run-in period of time. And proof of that is that after you excluded the first 10% of people on your study, you could still weed out another 10% in your double drug run-in period. This is astonishing. And then you were randomized and randomization and outcomes were all measured from the moment of randomization where roughly about 8,000 people were randomized. What were you randomized to? You were randomized to take on Tuesday, the same medicine you took on Monday. You were on Secubitril Valsartan at that full dose. That was the experimental arm. The control arm was asked to switch to a drug they hadn't seen in the prior 28 days, go back to an allopril 10 milligrams BID. Now, this is another imbalance because if there's any penalty that comes from switching the medication, that penalty is paid by which arm? The control arm. It's not paid by the intervention arm. The intervention arm continues to take what they're taking and outcomes are measured from the moment of randomization. So it's a very unusual study design, unequal ACE and ARB dosing, double drug run-in period of time, unequal periods of time, and you're pushing the ARB dosing in your, in your 28 days quite astonishing to me. And so if somebody walks into my clinic, are they a paradigm HF candidate? I don't know, unless I run them through the gauntlet of 14 and 28 day run-in period, because the inclusion criteria of the study is actually an inarticulable inclusion criteria. It means you've survived this double drug run-in without having an exacerbation. You couldn't tolerate it. You felt really sick, those sorts of things, or even died during the run-in period. When I read this study, Paradigm HF, my thought, my mind started racing. I thought to myself, when you have 10,000 people with heart failure, surely some of those people took an allopril baseline. Surely some of those people, they weren't limited in the real world to 10 milligrams BID. They must have been taking a higher dose at baseline because in the real world, the doctor could have pushed the dose. And in fact, we know from other publications that pushing the ACE inhibitor dose was actually associated with beneficial outcomes in this population. And we were trained. The mantra was to push these doses. The cardiologists were so keen and eager to push the dose of ACE or ARB. So I wondered, 
I wonder what percent of people who enroll in this study actually could have tolerated a higher ACE inhibitor dose than the dose that was maximally prescribed by the study, the limited dose of the trial. And I asked, I thought to myself, how could I ever figure that out? That's gonna be a tricky question. Could they have taken a higher dose of ACE if they wanted to? I looked in the supplement appendix and lo and behold, it had this little data point. It said at the screening visit of this study, among the medications people were taking, 2,100 were taking enalapril and the mean dose they were taking and standard deviation was 16.4 milligrams with a standard deviation of 8.3. Now, this is one of the reasons the authors justify their below average, below limit dose, um, capping at 20. They say that, well, the average dose we achieved was really good, but that's not what we care about in drug development and drug and pharmacokinetics. We care about the people who could have taken a higher dose. Were they allowed to take a higher dose? It's not really about what the average person does. It's about the whole distribution. Here you have a truncated distribution of 20. You're not allowed to take any more in the actual study. But at the screening visit, you didn't have a truncated distribution. You had a distribution that's modeled by these two parameters. So the first pass assessment I made to try to figure out who could have taken higher than 20 at baseline was to assume a normal distribution of drug levels of drug dosing when you entered the study. And by this assumption, maybe about one in three people were actually taking a higher dose than 20, because that's what you would get if that was the median, that was the standard, that was the standard deviation. But that's not quite right because pills aren't continuously dosed. They're not dosed uh, like IV medications. It's not a continuous variable. They come in certain pill sizes and pill strength. And so this gentleman on the internet, Gabriel Rogers, he helped me out with this equation. Um, he watched a prior version of this lecture I'd given, and he assumed the different pill strength size, and he plotted it out. And I think he got a rather provocative conclusion, which is that plausibly with the actual pill strength size, I can get it to about 14% of people who enrolled on this study who were taking an allopril baseline, were taking 30 milligrams a day or 40 milligrams a day. They're taking a higher dose. And the truth here is that there is no unique solution to this problem. You need the actual study data to interrogate the question, but the answer is it's certainly not zero. So if 15% of people of the 20% of people who happen to be taking enalapril at baseline were taking a higher dose than the maximum dose prescribed in this study, what percent of people in the whole trial could have taken a higher dose than the maximum dose allowed to the control arm? And my answer is it's probably more than 15%. It's probably like 20 or 30%. Because remember, the doctors in the real world, they're not pushing this drug like you ought to be pushing it. And so what you really have created in Paradigm HF is a study where one arm is allowed to get the maximum ARB dosing and the other arm is penalized and they're not allowed to get the maximum ACE, even though they probably could have tolerated it. And proof of that is that some of them were tolerating a higher dose when they enrolled. The last thing I'd say, this study really made me scratch, scratch my head. And in the weeks that followed, I got into many arguments where I said it really was an unreliable study design. Double drug run-in period, it penalized the control arm. It was one trial, not two trials, which was the historical standard in cardiovascular drug development. The p-value had a lot of zeros in it. I think the PIs of this study were very impressed with that, but a lot of zeros in a p-value, that doesn't tell you the probability your drug works or not. It has to do with nominal statistical significance under the constraints of the trial. The probability the drug works or not has to do with whether or not the drug demonstrates efficacy across a range of plausible circumstances that mirror the real world, which we have not yet seen. So I had a very smart student, Rosa Ahn, 
I think she's now gone off to bigger and better things. She's a resident now. And I asked her to put the Paradigm HF study in context of the preceding drug approvals in cardiovascular disease. So she looked at all FDA approved cardiovascular drugs between 2005 and 2016. She looked at all the registration studies. She's found there's 141 studies and she extracted the study design. Is it drug versus placebo or drug A versus drug B? Of course, Paradigm is drug A plus B versus C. It's a unique study design that was only found in two studies. And I believe the other one was isosorbide and you can go read the literature on that that setting, I think they required a confirmatory study to prove the benefit in self-defined African-Americans. Here, there is no confirmatory study, and it is the only such trial design A plus B versus C that as a single trial led to registration. The next thing, the run-in period. How many trials had run-in periods? Some did, some didn't, some didn't report. That's not so good, by the way. We got to do a better job with reporting people. But no trial other than this trial had a double drug run-in period for unequal periods of time. So it is a paradigm. It is a unique and unprecedented study, not necessarily because of the result, but because of the very unusual trial design. That led Allison Haslam and I to write this in um, the circulation journal, I think Quality and uh, Safety, uh, where we argued that confirmatory trials are really needed for drugs approved on the basis of a single trial. And of course, my conclusion of this is that, you know, it's not good. I really don't know if the drug Secubitril, which is the drug people care about here. Why? Because that's the patent extending drug. That's the drug that you can get all the money for. You can't get all the money for your Valsartan. You get your money for your Secubitril. And I don't know if that adds anything. I didn't know if it added anything in Paradigm HF. I still don't know if it adds anything in any setting because I'd love to see its independent contribution to outcomes in any setting. And since this trial, of course, we've had Paragon HF, which missed the primary endpoint and the FDA drug label actually has a lot of caveats. I'm not sure how they have dealt with this. Um, and Paradise MI, which also is missing the primary endpoint of the study. Um, it's an unusual, unusual space in drug development. So here we have Entresto. By the way, if you don't dose it at the dose given in the trial, then I think you have no credible evidence at all in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. You got to dose it at the dose given in the trial. That's a hefty dose. And that dose outperformed enalapril at a sub-maximal FDA-approved dose. Even in people, many of whom surely could have taken more enalapril because some of whom were taking more enalapril. This study is really, really problematic. And the bigger problem is that few people in cardiology discuss the glaring problems in this study. And I have lectured on this topic over the years and had many spirited discussions and I haven't gotten to the bottom of it. I think it might be a long time, maybe after the patent ends on this drug that we actually learn whether or not people are better off for getting that Secubitril. So on that positive note, this is the video on Entresto that I have long wanted to do. And someday there's gonna be a little bit of an update because I have one more idea on how to probe this issue. It's time to talk about it. The POLO trial, germline mutant BRCA pancreas cancer. This is a trial that's long been a pebble in my shoe. And I wanna walk you through just why that is. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad, University of California, San Francisco. And let's take a look. Here it is. Maintenance olaparib, germline, BRCA, mutant, pancreas cancer. This is a study that came out. This was a trial that led to drug approval. Now olaparib is an approved option in the maintenance setting for particular patients with pancreas cancer. And why was it approved? Why was this so celebrated? Well, because this $12,000 a month medication extends progression-free survival. And there's the PFS benefit. The PFS goes from roughly 3.8 months to seven and a half months if you take Olaparib. 
But the trial was a little bit more interesting than that. And let me get into it before I do. You know, there might be some people listening to this who don't know what progression-free survival is. I want to explain it to you. It is a time to event endpoint. It's the time until something happens. We have a lot of time to event endpoints in medicine. Overall survival is the best known time to event endpoint. But progression-free survival is a different time to event endpoint. It's the time to event one of four things are counted as the event. And as such, it is a composite primary endpoint. What are those four things? When you scan a person at baseline on these clinical studies, you measure the diameter of at least a few target lesions. And imagine this is one of the lesions you measure. It has a unidimensional diameter, it has a cross-sectional area, and it has a volume. Now, progression-free survival is the time until one of four things happens. The first thing that could happen, and God forbid it happens, is the patient passes away. This is the survival portion of the PFS endpoint, and thankfully, it's not the most common occurrence in most clinical trials. The next thing that could happen is there are new lesions on the scan. You had previously scanned the lungs and there was nothing. You scan them again, they're innumerable pulmonary nodules. You biopsy those nodules and their pancreas cancer. That's a progression event and it's scored as a PFS event. The third thing that could happen is the tumor gets bigger, but it has to get bigger than a cross-sectional area of 120%, 119%. And that's what? Stable disease. Of course it's stable disease, but 121% is progression. Immediately, you might ask yourself, hmm, do patients walk into the office and at 119%, they say, you know, doc, I, I feel fine. I feel stable. At 122%, they say, oh, I feel something terrible. The answer is no. This is an arbitrary threshold that's been picked for a whole host of reasons. If you want to know why, you got to read the book Malignant. The last thing that could happen is the tumors could initially shrink. And if it shrinks more than 30%, that's considered a response. And if it grows, it's always measured from the smallest point. It's progression from the nadir value. And so here, you know, with the diameter of 84%, you technically have a progression event. So PFS is a time until one, two, three, or four, whichever comes first. We're very familiar with composite primary endpoints in, in medicine. In cardiology, we have major adverse cardiovascular events. In nephrology, they always have some composite like the time until blindness, the time until dialysis, or the time until A1C goes up half a percentage point, something like that, you know, that kind of composite endpoint. Not all the things in the composite are equally important. Obviously, one is the most important thing here. Back to this study. So this is the study where they took patients with pancreas cancer who had gotten four months of platinum-containing regimen treatment like fulfirinox, and then they were randomly assigned if they had stable disease or partial and complete response to taking olaparib, this costly PARP inhibitor, or sugar pill. And it was a time until they had progression was the primary endpoint of the study, PFS. And of course, I showed you the PFS benefit and people are celebrating because we have a targeted drug in pancreas cancer that has a PFS benefit. Well, one, it's not really that targeted. Um, and two, you know, that's a modest PFS benefit. I'm an old fashioned doctor. When I look at drugs, I wanna know if they extend my patient's survival or quality of life. And lo and behold, when I looked at this study at overall survival, there's not a lick of difference between taking Olaparib or taking sugar pill. It's about 18 months median survival. There's a couple points to make here. One, when you have a median survival that's measured in the course of 18 months, this is actually good for pancreas cancer because most pancreas cancer, the median survival is even less. But when it's measured in 18 months, you don't need a surrogate endpoint. There's no need. You're not saving any time. You're just confusing yourself with an endpoint that's not a measure of people living longer or living better. And that's what you've done here. Now, at the time of this study, the authors love to say things like, well, overall survival is not yet mature. Well, since the study, it has matured and there's no difference in overall survival. So this is a drug that extends PFS. 
What was the intervention? I told you, it was Olaparib. Is the control arm what you would have done? This is a question I always ask myself when I read a study. And the answer here is no, I wouldn't have had this control arm. If you have a patient with germline mutant pancreas, BRCA, pancreas cancer, and you give them full month, four months of platinum-containing regimens, you probably would give them two more months of fulfirinox, and then you'd stop the oxaliplatin, but continue the 5-FU indefinitely. And that's standard practice for most people in this space. There's not a lot of people who stop treatment entirely in metastatic pancreas cancer. The control arm I think here is unethical. It's not what anyone was doing at the time of this study. You wouldn't do it outside this study. You certainly wouldn't do it for someone with a good performance status who is responding or has stable disease to treatment. You would continue to get the mileage out of the chemotherapy. What was the effect size? I always ask myself, the effect size here is a modest improvement in the next question, a clinical or surrogate endpoint in a surrogate endpoint in progression-free survival. There is no effect size on the thing that actually matters overall survival. So that's how I sort of framed this study, but I dug into it a little bit deeper. I dug into it, I found some slides online, I was reading about it. I noticed that they have the three to two randomization ratio. We could do a whole video on these skewed randomization ratios. I noticed that you had to have no evidence of progression after 16 weeks of platinum therapy. And I noticed that that was inadequate because most people would give a couple more months, especially if people are responding, try to deepen that response. And then they'd give 5-FU indefinitely, I think. Um, and Olaparib or sugar pill. Here's what caught my eye the response rate. Now I told you earlier in this video, a response is defined as a 30% or more shrinkage in target lesions according to resist 2. Point, according to this 1.1. Here you have a response rate of olaparib. Well, this is an active cancer drug, so it should have some response rate. The response rate is 20%. But placebo, sugar pill has a 10% response rate. Well, that's awfully high. That's awfully high for sugar pill. I happen to know something that you might not know, which is that Ian Tannock, once upon a time, he looked at all placebo controlling con containing arms of randomized controlled trials, and he found that the response rate in those arms was about 2%, which is the measurement error that happens in clinical trials. You got a 10% response rate, five times more than I think measurement error, and half of what you get with an active drug from sugar pill. I start thinking to myself, do I think sugar pill shrinks pancreas cancer? Does sugar pill generate responses in pancreas cancer? There's a lot of excitement about sugar in cancer, but the answer is no. Sugar pill doesn't do anything for pancreas cancer, certainly nothing beneficial. So why did 10% of people have shrinkage here? Why did a sugar pill cause a 10% response? When I give this lecture to a large audience of people, even if they're not oncologists, eventually somebody, a very smart medical student, will come up with the answer. And here's the answer. Here's another way to think about it. What happened in this study? You gave people four months of chemotherapy and an inadequate amount of chemotherapy. And you randomize them to sugar pill or the, or the active drug. And they were all enrolled with stable disease or PR. And while they took Olaparib, some fraction of people, 20% of people, one in five, they had a 30% or more tumor shrinkage here. And here, one in 10 people had a 30% or more tumor shrinkage. Why did those patients have a 30% or more tumor shrinkage? And the answer is, is that shrinking tumors is like getting a train moving. Once you get it up to speed, even when you let go, it's gonna coast for a while, there's some inertia. So the reason placebo arm here has a 10% response rate is these patients are still responding to chemotherapy that they haven't gotten in weeks and that the doctor has in poor decision-making withholding from them. Imagine then if in the placebo arm of this study, you actually gave them more platinum doublet and then you gave them some 5-FU. You wouldn't have a 10% response rate. I suspect you wouldn't even have a 20% response rate. I bet you might even have a higher response rate. So the control arm of this study was so delinquent that we are withholding treatment that people are still responding to they haven't gotten in weeks. And that 
is clearly visible in the polo trial. So polo trial, you halt a therapy that is normally not halted and you randomize people to a new costly toxic drug or placebo. You measure an endpoint that is not a measure of what matters. And oh, by the way, historically has never been accepted in pancreas cancer because you don't need surrogate endpoints in pancreas cancer because the actual event of interest occurs with some rapidity. You don't improve overall survival. Quality of life is no better. So what does this FDA do? What does this FDA do? I wonder on the question of whether Olaparib in this setting had a favorable risk-benefit profile, the Oncology Drug Advisory Committee votes narrowly in favor, 7-5. The answer is, heck yeah, they say, heck yeah. Well, I don't think heck yeah when I hear this. I think this represents a great moral and scientific failure of the profession. We're so punch drunk on getting AstraZeneca some more bucks that we don't wanna ask if our clinical trials actually inform anyone's practice. No one should practice according to the intervention arm of Polo because the control arm is delinquent therapy. It's not what anyone would do. There's a 10% response rate from sugar pill proving that you're responding to drugs you're not allowed to get on the control arm. This is so bad. I don't know what is worse, profound vision, this. There's so many competitors for worse trial. Based on the nudge of Christopher Booth, Go Nishikawa, now a Hemong Fellowship applicant, by the way, you should consider him for your fellowship. Chris Booth and I wrote this up. This is in the journal Cancer, Olaparib for BRCA mutant pancreas cancer. Should the POLO trial change clinical practice? You know what we conclude, but you should read the paper. We find a lot of gems in it. So the POLO trial, I think it's emblematic of so many things wrong in oncology. It's a trial that's hoodwinking people, tricking you into thinking that you have a beneficial treatment. But as it was given in the study, it is simply uncertain if it's better than what you ought to have done outside of the study. Does this mean Olaparib has no role in this setting? I don't know, but randomized control trials to have to show you how the drug can be applied in a way to improve patient outcomes beyond standard therapy, not in lieu of acceptable therapy. And so these problems in polo are deep and they are a poison in our field. And if you're interested in this, I would say like this video, write a comment, subscribe to the channel, listen to plenary session, read the paper and read the book Malignant. Actually, there's a lot more insights in there. So. On that positive note, until next time. Dr. Vinay Prasad here from the University of California, San Francisco. I'm talking about a new paper. It came out in Nature Medicine a while back. It's about artificial intelligence and knee radiographs. I find it super interesting. This is going to be a little bit different than the other videos on this channel. I'm not going to make a forceful and brisk argument. This is going to be more contemplative. It's going to be more ruminating about this study, which is super interesting. There is one point I want to make at the end, which I think is a, a severe point, um, but I want to walk through what the authors did here, why they did it, what they found, and why it's so interesting. So first of all, I have to say hats off to the authors here. I really like this paper because it got me thinking a lot got me thinking a lot about the topic. It got me thinking a lot in general. And I appreciate people in science who can do work in science that gets you, gets your noodle going, gets you thinking. And I think this paper is in line with the best of science. It gets that going. So what is this paper? An algorithmic approach to reducing unexplained pain disparities in underserved populations. What are they talking about here? Well, they have a data set. It's got thousands of radiographs in there of the knee. And we also know that people have some subjective perception of knee pain. And there's the knee pain and the radiograph. And there are a number of metrics that already exist that are used that attempt to score knee pain based on radiographic abnormalities. Now, of course, all of the radiographic abnormalities of a knee and the pain, they one doesn't explain the other fully. In fact, radiographic abnormalities explain very little 
of the cumulative knee pain or the difference in knee pain, the variance in knee pain that people experience. And so these authors were wondering, what if we used AI, trained it, machine learning, trained it on the radiographs, it's going to try to predict pain, but it's not going to look at all the things we've conventionally looked at. In fact, it's a black box. We don't know what it looks at, looks at but hopefully it'll predict AI will predict the pain better than the conventional method of predicting knee pain from, uh, from films. So I think it's kind of a clever idea. The other thing the authors note is that there is a racial gap and a socioeconomic gap, but the racial gap is that black patients experience more knee pain um, than white patients. And if you use the current radiographic scores, you don't fully explain the difference in knee pain. You explain some of it because they have worse scores on the radiograph, um, but it doesn't fully account for the difference in pain they experience. One hypothesis is that the current radiographic scoring system was predominantly developed on white people, and it may lack relevance in a diverse population. And so we may literally not be looking at the right things and not have invested energy in figuring out the right, right way to predict pain from radiographic features. The other things the authors talk about, I think, initially, is that there's a component of knee pain that's outside of the knee. It has to do with all of the very complex things that go on in all of our lives that affect how we feel and whether or not we have knee pain. And so what they're doing here by training AI on the films is they're trying to say, what's the most information you can get from the radiograph? And maybe there is this other component of knee pain that we're not able to capture, but maybe the current scales of knee pain don't fully capture the damage, the pathology that's going on inside the knee. So I hope that's a fair summary of what they set out to do. And I think it's quite interesting uh, on the face of it. It's, it's a very interesting question. Here's what they found. They developed this algorithm, the ALGP, that's their artificial learning algorithm. And the R-squared value is 0.16, but it was only 0.1 with that traditional measure of knee pain, uh, the traditional scoring system for knee radiographs, point, which was 0.1. First thing to say here is this, this is very little R-squared. I mean, most of the pain and the variation in pain people experience is not explained by anything on the radiograph, either if you use AI or if you use the old-fashioned system. But the one thing that is worth saying here is that they're 60% better. You know, they are a lot better. That's a lot better. I mean, I'll concede that to them. They're doing a lot better at predicting the pain using their algorithm than the traditional method. And they show in a number of ways that um, that is even better in, 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 in racially diverse populations. What else do I wanna say here? We found that the disparities in osteoarthritis pain can be better accounted for by differences in this new measure of radiographic disease severity relative to the standard measure, the KLG. As shown in table two, ALGP accounts for 43% of the racial pain disparity, 4.7 times more than KLG did. It also accounted for two times more of the disparity by income, 3.6 times more of the disparity by education. Um, this is interesting. So I guess what they're suggesting is, look, when you develop that initial KLG system, which I believe was developed in the United Kingdom, they allude to, it was mostly on white people, and you have learned the radiographic predictors of pain in a white population, but this does not readily extrapolate to other races. And we're showing you here when we have a sort of racially diverse, at least more diverse than England at the time, uh, uh, population, we can have a better prediction of pain. Um, the first question is it reconstructing race or socioeconomic status? This was my first question, which was, and I'll give you a little analogy before I delve into this. Um, I heard from someone uh, 
that they once trained AI on slides in the hematology office. And some of the slides were pathology, Castleman's, Hodgkin's, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And some of the slides were normal tissue. And they trained AI to look at these slides and say, is this abnormal or normal? And it got really good at predicting what was abnormal. And then later it was revealed the thing that it was using to predict abnormal from normal wasn't any histopathology, but rather dust on the cover slip because these slides were stored in the office. Students would always look at the slides of the pathology and they wouldn't look at all the normal slides and those normal slides would collect dust. So if you had dust on it, it was more likely to be normal than abnormal. And that was what I was predicting. There's always that risk with AI. It's finding something that you don't know what it's finding. And what it's finding isn't exactly knee pathology, i.e. the knee grinding down and causing you pain, but something on the radiograph that's tipping it off as to the person's race or their socioeconomic status. And so my first question for these authors would be, how do you know your algorithm isn't actually just learning race and having known race? It's using race as a factor to predict pain because we know African-Americans are having more pain in this data set than white people. So it could be learning it that way. And they actually thought about that to their credit. And they, they did one sensitivity analysis to try to correct for that, which is the following. In a regression with pain scores, a dependent variable, the coefficient of ALGP was 0.94 without controlling for binary race or socioeconomic variables, and 0.83 when controlling for all th three binary race or socioeconomic variables. Thus, the coefficient remained highly statistically significant and similar magnitude, blah, 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 blah. They're saying that even if you adjust for black or non-black, higher or lower income or higher or lower education, this ALGP is still better at predicting pain, suggesting that it's not relearning these factors. In fact, because we're putting them in as other variables in the model, it is actually learning pain based on radiographs in a way that we have hitherto not learned it, that radiologists have not appreciated. This is interesting to me. But one thing I do note is the coefficient has gotten smaller, hasn't it? 0.94 to 0.83. So some of ALGP is through these mechanisms, I suspect. Now, the confidence intervals are wide here. You need a mega data set to prove that this is statistically significant, this difference, but it has to be considered that this is hinting at that at least some of the predictive power of the AI algorithm is through these variables. The next thing I will say is they are still binning these variables, education and income into a binary classification. Now, that's not the same amount of information as if you had a true continuous variable. Um, I wonder if you put in really continuous variables, if the ALGP coefficient will drop even more from 0.83 to 0.7 or 0.6, suggesting that ALGP is learning socioeconomics just within the bin. It's learning something about whether you make 51,000 or 120,000 or 190,000 or 250,000. I think that's possible. To me, in my mind, the way to really lay this to rest would be the following experiment. If you were to take 10,000 radiographs of 25-year-old people or 30-year-old people who you know, don't have knee pain, they're just coming into the office, they had a radiograph for some other purpose um, or suspected fracture or something like that, um, uh, and they had, a, they had leg films and you just crop out the, the knee part of it, um, and you, and, but these are people not, who, are, who are not seeking knee pain, they're not coming in for knee pain. You took these films and you asked if the ALG, if this algorithm can predict their race or their socioeconomic status, make race, socioeconomic status, or education the variable you seek to predict, make that the dependent variable and ask if the algorithm can predict that. And if you show me it has zero predictive power for race or socioeconomic status, then I'm resting assured that the algorithm is not learning or AI is not capable of learning or extrapolating 
race and socioeconomic status from some artifact on the film, an artifact I can't even imagine. And, and of course I can't imagine it because AI can find all sorts of things you don't, you, you couldn't even think about like the dust on the cover slip. You know, I wouldn't have even thought about that, right? Um, so I think that to me, that kind of robustness check would really persuade me that it is not learning this. Um, or the other thought I had would be to make these sort of continuous variables really get a sense of their income and net worth in a really continuous way and prove to me that that coefficient is not dipping to 0. 0.6 or 0. 0.7. Okay, now here's where they get, and this is the part that I think is super interesting. In addition to raising important questions regarding how we understand potential sources of pain, our results have implications for determination of who receives knee arthroplasty for knee pain. While radiographic severity is not part of the formal guidelines, it does, to some degree, people with higher KLG scores are more likely to receive surgery. And ALGP identifies a subgroup of patients who have severe knee pain based on radiographic appearance of the knee. However, this appearance is not consistent with severe osteoarthritis as defined by the traditional systems. So it's possible that these people would benefit from, us, from arthroplasty, but because the radiographic severity is not that bad, they are preferentially given physical therapy, opioids, those sorts of things. And that might not be good for them. Um, so to kind of prove this, um, they asked, which knees would potentially be eligible for surgery using the old scoring system and using the new scoring system. And what they show is that there's going to be an increase in black patients who are eligible for surgery, lower income patients and lower education patients. So this is quite provocative. And this is, I think, the most interesting part. This is the most interesting part. This is the part I want to sink my teeth into. I think the authors have done a a very good job throughout this paper. They have piqued my interest in a way it hasn't been piqued in a long time. And they've got me thinking in ways I haven't thought in a long time. This is the part where I come a little bit off board and I think that they're kind of missing it, what they need to be predicting. See, we don't want AI to predict how much of the pain is attributable to pathology in an e-radiograph. That's not what we want AI to predict when we're thinking about who to take to surgery. We want AI to predict which people we take to surgery are going to get the biggest benefit from surgery. It's the Delta surgery we want to predict. In other words, how much will the pain fall from having surgery? You could have somebody with a baseline pain score of eight and a person with a baseline pain score of six. And if the person with a baseline pain score of six will, will go from six to one and eight will just go from eight to six, the person to take to surgery is actually the six. It doesn't matter what your baseline pain is. It's what's the Delta pain reduction or the Delta improvement in functional status, which is probably the bigger reason why people get arthroplastic knee surgery isn't just the pain, it's of course, improvement in functional status. And the counterfactuals, of course, these patients are getting aggressive physical therapy and all those other things we do. And so what I think this paper is mistaken in the sense that it's doing is it's training AI to recognize radiographic abnormalities some of which may be unmasking these factors, but probably mostly not unmasking these factors. Good for them to look into that. Um, that predict pain. But pain is not the thing that surgery prompts, that prompts surgery. The thing that prompts surgery is relief of pain, which is a different variable than the baseline pain. Baseline pain that doesn't get better with surgery, that's what no orthopod wants to take to the OR. And sadly, that's a lot of patients they take to the OR. Baseline pain that gets a lot better from surgery that's the patient the doctor wants to take the OR. So I think because they obviously, they don't have that. They don't have the Delta pain based on surgery. Of course, you would need an entirely different data set. Possibly that data set is a very difficult data set to get or doesn't even exist or it'd have to be constructed or have to be in the, in, 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 in as part of a prospective study. But it's the Delta, it's the absolute risk reduction in pain 
that you want to train your AI on. You want to take people to the OR who are going to drive the most benefit, not necessarily people who have the most baseline pain explicable by radiographic factors. Now, that's a pathophysiologic story that may make you feel good at night, but that's not how pain works in the body, and that's not how these surgeries work. And there's a lot of complexity to pain and the surgery that are beyond the scope, as we've already seen. So that, I think, is the most interesting point. Very interesting paper. I mean, it's a very interesting paper. It, it does persuade me that this scoring system for knee osteoarthritis developed in, I don't know, 19 diggity two based on white people in the UK is probably not the best radiographic scoring system for a diverse population of people. And that if you use their AI, their AI can look at things that we may not appreciate or never even thought of to look at or measure. And by that, actually, it's predicting a higher proportion of the knee pain. But it's also worth reminding ourselves that the R squared is 0.16. It was 0.1, which is terrible. Now it's 0.16, which is still super low. That's 60% better, but it's still most of the variation in knee pain, 84% is unexplained by any radiographic abnormality, suggesting that pain is a very complex emotion, complex feeling, and it's driven by so many things in our lives. Um, and the final point is that I'm not persuaded that we will make better operative decisions by using their score instead of the traditional score, because I think we're not getting at the, the thing that we're trying to optimize, which is the reduction in pain, not necessarily the percent of pain explicable by radiographic abnormalities, which may not have anything to do with reduction in pain. And ironically, you might be taking the wrong or different patients, different African-American patients, different white patients to the OR, people who are actually going to drive less benefit by using their system than in the old way. It could actually make things worse, right? If you don't train on the right thing, the thing you're trying to optimize, you could actually make things worse. I think that's an important point that we forget. So, why did I do this paper? I'm very interested in AI and cancer screening and things like that. And I think this really kind of pushes these thinking um, in, in albeit a space that I'm not that interested in. But full disclosure, we do have a paper that we are submitting on knee arthroplasty. And I did in the last few years shadow an orthopod doing several of these surgeries because it did pique my interest. And so I will have something in this space soon, but it won't be exactly related to what they're doing. On that positive note, we'll be back with our more typical video next time, but this was more of a contemplative video walking you through this paper. And again, I wanna say, congratulations to the authors. You kept me interested. And I would say that is a high bar in this world of biomedical research where I am so easily bored. So thank you. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time.